0: This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans, and today I'm talking to someone who may not be from the South, but over 20 plus years as a TV host, he spent plenty of time there. Andrew Zimmern grew up in New York City where he learned his love of food from traveling with his parents and spending weekends with his grandmother. He got his first job in a restaurant on Long Island at age 14, and after some difficult years with substance abuse, he eventually moved to Minnesota, where he got sober and gained attention as a chef, radio host, writer, and TV personality. In 2006, he started hosting Bizarre Foods on the Travel Channel, which earned him four James Beard Awards and made him one of the most successful hosts in the history of food TV. We'll talk about his life and career, his thoughts on the South, and his current show for the Outdoor Channel, Andrew Zimmern's Wild Game Kitchen, all on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Andrew Zimmern, welcome to Biscuits and Jam.
1: Good to be here. Where
0: am I reaching you?
1: I'm sitting in my office in Minneapolis.
0: So, all right, I've got to get this out there right off the bat that you are probably one of the least Southern people that I've interviewed on this podcast. I mean, you were born in New York, you live in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. but I also know that you do love the South and have loved your time down here.
1: That's true. Also, my family came in from Germany into the port of Charleston in the 1840s. A storm blew the boat off course, and instead of going to New York, they went to Charleston, and they were meat cutters from central Germany. And my relatives, my ancestors made their way to Atlanta and cut meat there for quite a while, became very successful. When the armies of the North and South were spending that year in that standoff on either side of the Potomac, they were selling meat to both sides of this soon-to-be American history-defining conflagration. And they felt, as a family— that they couldn't feed both sides in a conflict. And the members of the family who felt that, well, it was just easier to feed the people who were geographically just north of you, i.e. the armies of the south, than it would be once bullets started flying to feed the armies of the north. And so they made what at the time seemed like a simple decision. Years later, when Grant burned Atlanta down, They walked to New York and became furniture makers for generations until my father and his brother, who were the first in the family to go to college. But whenever I'm in Charleston or in Atlanta, and quite honestly, almost any other place in the states that you would cross in between there, and it probably extends all the way to Louisiana. I don't feel it when I'm in Florida. For some reason, I have a different feeling there because everyone in my family retired there. Like most Jews from the Northeast, they retired to Florida and that's where they spent the last days of their life and are interred. But I feel at home down in the South. I mean, I've just always felt it. And that became extremely true the more and more I traveled there. And making television extensively throughout the South, which I did way more than the Northeast the Midwest or the Northwest, simply because of weather. Right. So I've spent a lot of time there. I have a lot of friends there. I continue to spend time there. I've opened businesses there. And it's a very special place to me. You know, I'm a big history and culture geek. I think that it is one of the parts of our country that is, number one, very misunderstood, but number two, also holds within it So much of our past, our present. Our food, our music. Yeah, it holds the keys to so many of our cultural totems. And I find it endlessly enjoyable to be there.
0: Well, you've got plenty of cred, so you're very welcome here on Biscuits and Jam. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So, Andrew, you're born and raised in New York, grew up there. When you think about the cooks in your family who kind of had the biggest impact on you, and I'm thinking grandparents here too, who comes to mind?
1: My grandmother, my mother, and my father, equally, because at various phases in my childhood, they were the ones who gave me the curiosity, gave me the inspiration, taught me in many cases. My grandmother had children late in life, and my mother and father had children late in life. So I had a very older, inactive grandparent. And I was a very rambunctious little kid. But my parents felt it was important that I spend at least a couple days a month with my grandmother, which I'm grateful for. And so typically, every other Saturday, I would spend the afternoon with my grandmother, sleepover. Then the whole family would convene at her house every Sunday for a huge lunch. And then I would go home with my mom and dad. My grandmother only did two things on Saturday. She shopped and she cooked. And my grandmother was also the president of the sisterhood at the synagogue around the corner from where she lived on 79th and West End. What was her name? Henriette Zimmern. And these were the days where you didn't rotate every five years out of that job, you held on to it like Joseph Stalin held on to power. I mean, If you're the head of the sisterhood at your synagogue, you are a big deal, and you do not let anyone have that position until you choose to give it away. But she was a big timer in that neighborhood because of that. And these are the early to mid-sixties. So around the corner from her house was Zabar's and Greenberg's and Murray's and all these famous appetizing stores. And what became Fairway Market was there. I mean, all these famous New York City sort of like food landmarks on the upper west side that fed this huge population there and every other little store in between, right? Incredible bakeries and meat shops and seafood purveyors. Back in the days in New York where you didn't have supermarkets everywhere, you had individual specialists, uh, more in the what we think of as the European style, but was prevalent here until the supermarket sort of pushed all these small vendors and storekeepers out. And so to shop with my grandmother was to go up the Avenue Broadway on one side and then down it on the other side and visit all these stores where I was sort of treated to see a piece of life that grabbed me by the throat. I mean, to be in a Hungarian butcher store and have them take a rectangle about the size of your pinky of smoked bacon fat, no meat, just the smoked fat, and roll it in hot paprika and hand it to me like a candy. (laughs) That to me was so delicious. And we would stop at the candy shop to get these little raspberry candies that my dad and his brother liked. And my grandmother always wanted to make sure she had them in her house. And smoked fish at Zabar's, the guys would, you know, be slicing her pound of smoked fish and wrapping up her white fish and sturgeon and hand me a piece of this smoked fish that just melted in my mouth. I was just so enraptured by this world of food. And then we'd go to her kitchen and she would make the 17 dishes that she made all the time, just in rotation. I don't know how she cooked for so many people out of a kitchen the size of my laptop, truly. But I was told to sit and stay out of the way because she didn't want me to get hurt by flying chicken fat. And eventually she needed help. And I was so eager to do it. And so she taught me a few things. And by the time I was seven, eight, I transferred that into cooking with my mother weekdays in our home and during the summer a lot out in Long Island. My mother lived out at our summer home all summer long, as did I, went to day camp out there, got involved in sports out there. So we had this amazing garden and part of the deal was I had to help my mom during the week. My dad would come out on weekends. During that time, I learned a lot from my mother about cooking, and this is just a great story. When she was young and went off to college in San Francisco at Mills College, an all-woman school, she roomed with Trader Vic Bergeron's daughter.
0: Right. I read that.
1: (laughs) They were freshman roommates. And Trader Vic taught them to cook. So in the 60s, when my mother had a young child and was married and entertaining at home, I think she was the only woman in New York City who was making poo-poo platters without looking at a recipe book and chicken chow mein and all this Polynesian food and Chinese American food. And we were definitely a food first family, but to see it cooked all the time in front of you was to give you a curiosity for it. Now, my father traveled for work. He helped run a big ad agency and it had goals to be international. So my parents divorced and at the time that I would be with my dad, he would just take me out of school and bring me with him to Europe or wherever they were expanding to. And by the time I was 10 years old, I had been to Four Continents, which was an education that I just wouldn't trade for anything in the world. I'm a pale version of my dad. He commanded every room he walked into. He was always the most interesting man there. He just had such a giant-sized life and loved to eat to travel and travel to eat. and. He would take me to places. When I was nine years old, I ate underneath the Roman aqueduct in Valle de los Gallegos, which is where the Spanish dictator is buried. And there was a restaurant there, a very famous one that I understand is just recently closed. You ordered the lamb or the pig. That was it. And then you had all your other courses already chosen for you, and you got a roast baby lamb or pig. It was one per person and wood fired. And to experience that before I was 10 and have your father tell you, you eat the crispy parts of the ears first, you know, don't let them get rubbery with the steam from the rest of your animal. My father just loved food in a way that very few people I've ever met love food. And he was also very friendly with James Beard and the whole sort of downtown New York food cognoscente sort of scene. He lived down at 2 Horatio Street for 50 years before retiring to Long Island and then eventually to Maine, where he passed seven or eight years ago. But those were the three that really gave me all the things I loved, every tool I needed I had before I was 10 years old. I then did everything to throw it back in their face over the subsequent 20 years where I was an incorrigible mess and selfish user of people and taker of things until I sobered up when I was 30 and sort of changed that part of my life around. But, you know, looking back on it, it was their gifts that sort of made me who I am today.
0: Wow, what an education. I mean, it was just all kind of baked in, so to speak.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious when I look back on it, right?
0: Yeah, so back to your grandmother for a second. I mean, when you think about her and some of those dishes, are there dishes that you make today that she might have taught you or that have kind of stayed with you over the years?
1: Weekly, religiously, <laughs> and many. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you asked the question that way. I've never actually had it asked that way. What's interesting about it is that I think if you lined up 100 well-known culinary people, Where'd you get your first inspiration for cooking? If we were playing Family Feud, number one would be grandmother. Can we see grandmother? Ding, ding, ding. That's going to come up first <laughs> sure, on the yeah. board, right? Yeah. But how many people cook the food of their grandparents? I think that's probably more confined to people who identify ethnically, religiously, or in some other way, you in, in know, trying to keep a flame alive. You know, my grandmother was an observant Jew who made the 19th century Eastern European Jewish classics as well as anybody. And so from her chopped liver to her latkes, to her chicken soups, her barley soup with lamb, her brisket, her roast chicken. I mean, all of these things I literally make today. Have I, in some cases, chefed them up a little bit? Sure. In some cases, have I figured out a smarter way to do something? Absolutely.
0: So, Andrew, I don't want to go through your whole career with restaurants. You grow up around all this food. You grow up traveling, just having these incredible experiences that you probably took for granted to some degree at the time. Of course. Of course. Like, oh, I guess every kid gets to do things like this. But you go into restaurants, and what was it about – working in a restaurant that really lit you up? I mean, was it the energy? Was it the people? Was it making people happy in the restaurant, seeing the way they responded? What was it that really kind of caught fire with you?
1: Well, all those things, and I'll get back to the last one because it speaks a lot to my mental health issues that you know, I think are better, but I still have to cope with. For me, it was freedom. When I was 14, my father said, get a job. I said, why do I need a job? I get allowance. He said, no, get a job. Buy your clothes. You know, everyone I knew went to work for landscaping companies. The building boom sort of started then. And you could always get a job pushing a wheelbarrow. And they would pick you up in these trucks at five thirty, six in the morning at your house. And they'd drop you off at three thirty, four in the afternoon. And... It was a hard job. You're hauling dirt and digging holes. And I had seen my friends who were older go through this. And I was like, well, I'll be damned if I'm giving up drugs, girls, and the beach. And which at the time was all I wanted to do that whole summer of 1975. I wanted to cook. And so I got a job at night working in my godmother's restaurant, which was a seafood restaurant in East Hampton called The Quiet Clam. I remember the first night in the restaurant and my godmother had put me to work on the cold side, cleaning lettuce, cleaning clams and oysters, helping put ice in the raw bar. And I just went at it. I had sort of earned a job there, shucking oysters and clams and making a pretty tray of shellfish on ice. And this was in an open kitchen that was unintentional. They just couldn't afford to put up a wall. And seeing that tray go across the room and seeing the person look down and realized that all the oysters and clams were intact. They weren't butchered and hacked. Seeing that everything was arranged the right way and ice wasn't going to melt into their cocktail sauce or mignonette. I mean, the little things that I think some people notice, others don't, but I did, filled me up with so much joy. I mean, part of my addiction and alcoholism issues are continue to be, but were back then in full bloom, A ton of unhealthy codependency where I got my self-esteem from other people, which is sort of a backwards system. I don't recommend it for anyone. I'm just saying that's how I was. And so a lot of it had to do with the romance of the restaurant, the theater of the restaurant. Every day was different. I loved that. You have a bad night, start over the next day and get it right. I loved cooking. I mean, truly I couldn't put words on it, but I was plagued with depression and anxiety as a young kid, still to some degree uh, today. But when I'm cooking, I'm not thinking about me and my problems. I'm just thinking about what I'm making. You know, it's sort of like playing catch. It's impossible to think about your problems when someone's throwing a ball at you at 40 miles an hour. It's going to hit your face if you don't put your mitt up. So it solved a lot of my mental health problems. It gave me esteem, took away the shame that I was feeling all the time, right? That's that loving to do things for other people, couldn't care less about me. But at the same time, I found something that gave my mind the peace and quiet that I was desperate for, that I only found in using drugs and alcohol until I gave those up and found a different substitute that was a lot healthier. And, and you know, I think I liked being a part of a team. I liked being a teammate. I liked being the one at the end of the night that the chef was like, great job, kid. You know, you pulled us out of the weeds. I mean, that was dynamite. I also liked being the 14-year-old in a room full of 25-year-olds because the things that I was into in my teen years, the 25-year-olds were all doing. Not a lot of my friends were. You know, the music, the parties, the girls, the drugs, the drinking. And again, I, I'm i not glorifying it. I'm not recommending it for anyone. But that, when I was a teenager, was where I was finding my salvation. I was looking for the answers in the wrong places but I found them in that restaurant community in a resort town for the summer where that was just part and parcel of the deal. Not all restaurants are like that, but that one certainly
0: was. After the break, I'll talk more with Andrew Zimmern about his time in the South and his latest show, Andrew Zimmern's Wild Game Kitchen. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bees Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? Welcome back to Biscuits & Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the James Beard Award-winning TV host and chef, Andrew Zimmern. Well, let's go south for a second. I'm guessing that you, on all your travels with your dad, were not going to Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Texas, probably spending a lot more time in France, places like that. When did you really start to discover southern food?
1: college, I came to contact with people from all the southern states. And in many cases, more often than with kids from my part of the world, they all cooked. And so we sort of found each other. And I saw things and I was like, holy moly, what is that? Right? Now, by that time, I had eaten gumbos and decided I liked them, but I'd never cooked one. And You know, when someone from Louisiana, it was actually a a woman that I was dating, made gumbo for 20 people next to the keg. And this dark brown, bubbly thing smelled like it had burnt. And she says, yeah, that's the foundation of this whole dish. I was just like, I am so into you, but I think I'm (laughs) into what's going in that pot even more. (laughs) And that's where it started. And then very quickly... Moving back to New York City after college and cooking in New York until I came to Minnesota, there was a lot of Southern food for the first time being cooked in New York City. In the 80s, all of a sudden, you had food popping off there right and left because everyone was hungry for the foods of somewhere else. It was explosive. New York grew up as a restaurant city. I'm talking about Manhattan, actually, grew up as a restaurant borough. At the end of the 70s and into the 80s for the first time, I remember there was a restaurant called Memphis that was opened by a bunch of guys who had had some bars and I was friendly with them and they would come into my restaurant all the time where I was the GM and I would go up there and eat all the time. They had barbecued shrimp. Two of them were from Memphis. Two of them were from Georgia and they just did the classic garlic Worcestershire rosemary you know, head on. I was just in love. And people weren't eating the heads in New York. I had eaten shrimp with my father in Europe and in Asia and was like, of course you eat the heads. And so there was this sort of thing happening where I realized that the food of the South was less diluted than foods in other places. But then things got really, really, really serious when I started to spend a lot of time in the South and tell stories of Southern culture and Southern food in my early television work. I just couldn't believe this was in my own backyard, and I was only discovering it in my 40s. It felt like somehow I had been (laughs) wrong. And I realized there's only so many places that you can eat during the first 30, 40 years of your life. I'm glad I discovered it when I did. I mean, there's a story with every dish that's put on a table in the South. In other places, some dishes have stories, but people are often in too much of a hurry to tell them. I forget where I first wrote it, but food is good. Food with a story is better. Food with a story that you haven't heard about is better than that. But food with a story that you haven't heard about, but that you relate to is best of all. I was all in on that last one with the foods that I was experiencing in Southern homes, right? Yes, in restaurants, sure. But mostly in the homes that I was going into. And I educated myself and fell in love. The education was quick and the falling in love part was even quicker. And I felt at home down there. Everything came family style on a platter, right? There seemed to always be more food than what was actually needed. The whole design of the meal was better. It seemed to be more closely tethered to the seasons. And this really surprised me based on what I perceived of the South as someone coming from New York. But it seemed to honor all the different ethnic groups and People's over the course of the previous hundreds of years that had contributed something into that dish. And it was talked about. There was an element of simplicity, but in that simplicity was real perfection. And within that perfection, the perfection wasn't mandatory.
0: Well, let me ask you about some specific places. You had bizarre foods for a lot of years, 13 seasons or something.
1: I made that show for almost 15 years before Travel Channel turned into a ghost and paranormal station and got away from travel and food. But because we did Bizarre Foods America and Bizarre Worlds, I count it all as one show. They count them differently on IMDb.
0: Yeah. So 15 years of travel all over the world and also all over the South. I know you came here to Birmingham and you went to New Orleans and you went to Charleston and you went to Houston. Out of all of those places, is there one city that you remember that really kind of stands out that was really special or that seemed kind of the most representative of the Southern food experience?
1: Oh, my gosh. It's hard to compare a place like Rain, Louisiana in the heart of Cajun country, where Donald Link's family is from. He's a famous chef and restaurant owner in New Orleans and a close friend. And when Donald took me up there to spend time with his uncle and make hog ponds and go out with his cousin at midnight in the rowboat in the rice paddies to hunt bullfrogs, I've never seen a bullfrog the size of a football. And then the next day, cooked I mean, each leg looked like a chicken dark quarter. Not just the leg, the dark quarter. I mean, these bullfrogs were gigantic, and he did them with a sauce piquant that I'm actually cooking a version of on Wild Game Kitchen next week, actually. You know, spending time in Rain, Louisiana, and subsequent return trips to that part of Louisiana is different than the small towns in mississippi eating fried chicken in the back of essentially a five and dime store that would attract customers much in the same way that target does if we sell chicken at cost people will leave with twenty dollars worth of stuff on the way out you know and they'll make money not on the chicken but on the light bulbs and toilet paper is that any more vibrant than getting a food tour of birmingham 10 years ago and finding an Asian market with an incredible Chinese restaurant hidden in the back of it that Chris Hastings took me to. And is that any better than being in Charleston fishing and finding an empty spot on a piece of land that reveals itself when the water goes down and building a fire and roasting it without a pan on a green stick and pulling it apart with your fingers while? A 90-year-old man tells you that his way of life is not disappearing, it's gone. And the words that he's speaking sound like a really sad Jason Isbell song. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how you tell the difference between those things. But it really grabbed me. And we returned again and again to tell different types of stories. And I found that in so many towns and cities and restaurants and people's homes in the South that the stories came out the food came into sharper focus, the experience was richer, but also it said more about where our country was. So we would return to the South with my MSNBC series, What's Eating America, because we knew we could talk to people there about a way of life that is disappearing. I mean, we went in Charleston, I think we did this story four or five times, going out to a place where you could get pinwheel oysters that they cooked on a piece of metal over an open fire, and you just sit there and pull them out with your fingers and... That sounds like Bowens. It is, but we went back to talk to the oystermen there to find out that oyster prices really hadn't gone up very much in 20 years, but textbooks and gasoline sure did, and the cost of their rent and their insurance and their kids' haircuts. And so these oystermen who would take oysters in one part of the season and shrimp in another and stock people's meat lockers with deer and wild hogs in another and live off the land and be able to feed their families could no longer do that. And so to know that you could always go back there and tell those stories and have incredible people to share their experience and their story with you, there's no place like the southeastern quarter of our country. I just think it's rich beyond measure.
0: So you're talking about hunting, and I want to talk about your show for a minute, which is called Wild Game Kitchen. You're going out and hunting and fishing and preparing fish and game that you bring back. What's been a highlight of that experience compared to so many of the other cooking shows that you've done?
1: I've never done a dump and stir show, ever. I'm a storyteller. I use food as a magnifying glass. And... I never want to be the best. I'm not capable of that. It's also relative. But I'm very interested in being the only. With Bizarre Foods, I felt I was an only. Wild Game Kitchen, I think I'm an only. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other people cooking this type of food there. I just think a lot of those people are fishermen or backcountry woodsmen or great cooks who want to show you how to do something with your pheasant, right? I just thought, well, is there someone with the 40 years of work cred who can look down the barrel of the TV camera and say, I would suggest trying this with your venison. You want to make chili out of the leg meat and grind the trim for burgers? I do that. But let's not overcook the tenderloin and the back strap and the top round and let's roast the neck and then pull all the meat off of that and do a ragu with red wine and vegetables, because that was the original a right, in the style of the hunter that was cooked in Italy. They had dogs that hunted wild pigs and wild deer, and those were the cuts that they were given to cook. The center cuts of the animal went up to the count and the countess in the castle, right? So, you know, to be able to tie those things together and to have that ability to do that makes me, in this particular space, an only. So that really intrigued me. I think I also sort of wanted to blow up a little bit of a stereotype. I talk about my alcoholism and my addiction and some of my mental health issues all the time because I want people to know this is the face of that, right? And we clean up pretty well when we're sprinkled with a little dignity and respect, and we have a chance to make things right. And I believe in that message very powerfully. But there's so many people who say, well, Jews aren't alcoholics. You know, Jews don't hunt, especially ones from New York City. And I'm like, well, I do all the time. And so to have an opportunity to show people what I do in my house, but also to kind of raise up this idea of what wild food can be, I think it has a higher purpose when it comes to solving our climate crisis, our hunger crisis in America, our waste crisis in America, and so many of our other issues. And I think that on the flip side, there are a whole bunch of people throwing a lot of shade at folks in certain parts of our country saying, well, if you're out on a bass boat at five in the morning or seven at night, Or if you're shooting catfish with a bow and arrow off the front of a customized rig in the Mobile Bay in Alabama, or if you're treeing raccoons with dogs and cooking those up on the smoker, well, that's a backwards way of life. Well, I'm sorry. I disagree. I do that. And I consider it a frontwards way way of life.
0: I mean, you don't have to look back very far to find cookbooks that had all those things.
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. And by the way, the show is for everyone. So even if you've never held a fishing rod or taken a walk in the woods to look for an animal to put on your dinner table, you can go to the supermarket and buy a piece of meat and do the same fun recipe that I'm doing, right? You don't need wild turkey to do it. You can do it with chicken or turkey or duck or whatever, And we make sure to tell people that and what to do in case they don't have access to wild foods. But I think we get to spread a message and talk about culture in a way that is very important to me.
0: So let me ask you just in terms of recipes, there are a lot of people who deer hunt in this country. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people, particularly in the South, and they end up with venison and they don't necessarily know what to do with it. If there's one venison recipe that you could send me that we could share with people that might get them excited about cooking with venison a little bit more? What would it be?
1: Uh, You know, I literally think the most fun thing that I do with venison is I went to a place in Iowa that had a beef fry. I know this sounds crazy. Bear with me. (laughs) Uh, And it was called pitchfork fondue. And you paid like, Twenty bucks, and you got salad potatoes and macaroni salad and lemonade, and all the rest of that, and they had these giant vats of boiling oil, and they had these pitchforks, and these guys would spear big hunks of meat and they would put them into the hot oil and it would brown it to a crust. It, it was like deep fried turkey, but think big primals of beef, and then it would come out and rest, and then they'd slice it. It's really crusty on the outside, it's really juicy on the inside and I was like wow, I am so doing that with red meat when I get home. And so now I do it with uh, bison and with venison. And the reason is deep frying at that temperature locks in the fat and the juices in a way that other methods don't. It's such high heat, right? It cooks really quickly. So you got to kind of get used to it and test a couple size pieces before you start butchering everything else up. And it is kind of like fondue. And I've done it individually, with a fondue pot, but I didn't like that. I like it better when I go out to the turkey fryer, fry everything and bring it into the house. Because then you can season the meat with a spice mixture and then have three or four dipping sauces. And you have some salad and veg and other stuff around it. But fried venison is so good. And by the way, when you say the word fried venison to a lot of other families, especially in your part of the world, They roll cubes of venison in flour and pan fry it and then make a pan gravy with it. That's delicious. But I'm talking about actually deep frying it. We do have that recipe on my website under the Season 1 Wild Game Kitchen uh, recipes. I do it with bison, but you can do it just as easily. What's the recipe called? I think it's called buffalo bites or bison bites. If you go on to andrewzimmern.com, people can sign up for my Substack, but you can also just stick wild game kitchen into the search bar we just added the season 3 recipes season 3 is in premieres right now every monday night at 9 on the outdoor channel
0: that's great that's great i'm going to go investigate
1: <laughs> it's good
0: now i just need to get a deer andrew one more question for you what's the thing that you most love about the south
1: the people The world isn't made up of things. My experience is the world is made up of people. And the people in the South are kind and they're generous and they're honest. And the people that I've bumped into there have a way of expressing themselves and opening their door that the rest of us really should take a page out of their book on. It's always the people. Always the people.
0: Yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's the people. (laughs) Andrew Zimmern, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Andrew Zimmern. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And as always, we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash jam Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with one of the most well-known people in the world and a returning guest on this show, Dolly Parton. We'll see you then.